Welcome to Coach House Talks. So, yeah, okay, Samuel. So Samuel um, in the Hebrew canon belongs to uh, a group of books called the former prophets. So we have it in a we have it in a in a uh, order in our Bibles, but actually in the Hebrew Bible Samuel comes under the former prophets. So it's the prophets who are they, they are prophesying about what's to come. And so they're all lumped together. So the former prophets in the Hebrew Bible are Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, which was one book, and 1 and 2 Kings. Okay, so we know them as a kind of kingly history. Okay, uh, so broadly speaking, these correlate to what we'd also call the pre-exile history. Okay, up to the point where the nations of Israel and Judah fade from the world map and they become incorporated into other nations. They fade from view. Now, originally, as I've just said, one and two, Samuel were one book, and they cover the lives of three principal people, Samuel, Saul, and King David. The whole point of Samuel's writings are to show you David, are to introduce you to King David, to introduce you to what is going to come along. And David is the focal point of the entire book. So even though it's called Samuel, the focal point is always towards David and then what's to come. So let's have a look at our timeline. Hopefully it's going to come up there. So just remind us where we're at. It's all right. I've I've learned to be patient. Yeah, I have. Honest. Come on. We started off on this journey to cover the book from cover to cover to show that Jesus is central to everything. Okay, and if we don't grasp this, then we're going to struggle with Scripture. If we're looking for other things in Scripture other than Jesus, we're going to struggle. Because God's plan is always, and was always, Jesus. Okay, so everything in Scripture is pointing to Jesus. So where are we now? Well, we're in... Kind of, we're, we're up here now. The preparation for Jesus. How does God prepare us for Jesus, the coming king? And that's kind of where Samuel comes into the picture. Now, oh, it's gone. It's back. Hey. So it gets a little bit complicated from, from this point on, actually. And our Bibles get a bit complicated from this point on because we start to get all these divisions of things. And so we start to get the north and the southern tribes splitting off and we start to get uh, prophets speaking into various parts and we get kings writing psalms and proverbs and things and they're all coming up in this little bit in Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. So they all start to overlap and build on top of one another. So it can be quite complicated from this point on. But the thing we need to understand is that man will continue to make mistake after mistake. As we will see, every man that's chosen is still a man. And because they're a man, they're subject to sin and failure. What a surprise. And yet God tells us this as well, God still pursues his creation by whatever means necessary 
to redeem and rescue it. That's, that's what my Bible shows me and tells me. So coming up, we have the complications of a divided nation. Israel to the north, Judah to the south, followed by the exile. Israel comprised of 10 of the 12 tribes originating from Jacob, so they get taken up into the north. And when Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria, these 10 tribes became lost to history. Okay, so this is a little bit ahead of ourselves, but it's just to set the ground for what's coming up. The two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they stayed in the south. They lasted a little bit longer. Uh, they became known as the nation of Judah. But they then also fell into captivity with Babylon. Okay, so the north went into captivity with Assyria. The, north, the south went into captivity with Babylon. And all the nation of Israel kind of disappears. It's almost lost from sight. And you think, well, where, out of all of this chaos, is God going to bring salvation to us? Well, from the same place that he brought salvation in all the other times of chaos prior to this. God's never lost. And he never stops pursuing us, even though all of the calamities that befall us are genuinely because we keep making mistake after mistake. So even more complicated than all of that is the fact that our Bibles as we have it, and this is what I struggled with when I first became a Christian and started reading the Bible, I kept wondering why it was flipping backwards and forwards. Our Bibles are not necessarily chronological in the order of the books. So we have the history laid down for us, and then we have this whole section of poetry, and then the whole section of prophets, but all of the, and all of that fits into the historical bit that we're now in. So we have to do some piecing together to see where they fit historically and in context. And the context is really important. When we read something that a prophet's saying, it's really important to know what that prophet is saying it to and what the context of the king or whoever's been spoken to is. So either in the north, in which case they're a bad king, I'll tell you that now, or in the south, where sometimes you get a not too bad king. Okay, so it gets a... It gets a little complicated and some of the prophets are speaking, but you, don't, you need to know the context of what's being spoken to. Otherwise, people will take scriptures out and go, here's, I'm going to stand on this. And they think, that's a nonsense scripture to stand on because that's talking to a king who's absolutely abject and terrible and is going to be judged. Now, do you really want that? Because scripture cannot be taken today to mean something that it didn't mean in its original hearing. Okay. So let's be aware of that when we kind of listen to what people are saying to us. So we're going to look at the remainder of the Old Testament and our history section under the following broad headings. This is what we decided to do, to try and kind of piece it all together. So we're going to go and kind of look at what we would call the pre-exile, the exile, and the post-exile. So when we talk about exile, exile is Israel not being Israel anymore in its own land. So Pre-exile, it's okay. We're all, Israel's maintaining its status. Then it gets taken into exile by its enemies and Israel and Judah disappear. Okay? But then, spoiler alert, they come out of exile and things start to return back to normal before we get to our New Testament. So, if we see, see where each book fits, who it's been addressed to, it should help us to see how much God 
chases down his creation and through it all remains totally true to his covenant promises. So we've already seen some covenants that have been made. There is a massive one coming up because David is central to a lot of stuff that goes on. And there's a covenant made with David that we still can hold to today. So, we all know in here, don't we, because we're all good Bible students, we all know that it was never God's intention for Israel to have a king, right? Wrong. Oh, sorry. I just couldn't help myself put that in. The reason I put that in is because I always thought that as well. I always thought, you know, God never wanted Israel to have a king and therefore everything they did was just a mistake. But then there's scriptures like this. Back in Genesis, God's words to Abraham. You remember the Abrahamic covenant? Well, part of this, Genesis 17, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Well, we get that bit. What's more, I'm changing your name. It will be no longer Abraham. Instead, you'll be called Abraham. Means there's a significant change that God's done in his life. For you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. Oh. Ow. Ouch. Later, Jacob was also promised that kings would come from his bloodline. And indeed, one of Jesus' titles was King of Kings. It was all part of God's plan to rescue. God is never caught short. He's never without an answer. You see, it was all part of God's plan, but man, of course gets it all wrong again. Totally wrong as usual. Israel wanted a king to judge them despite the fact that Yahweh was their judge. And Israel wanted a king to fight for them despite the fact that Yahweh fought their battles for them. You see how this keeps going on and on in the same kind of cyclical argument. If man decides to put himself on his own, guess what happens? But if God says, if man says, you know, I trust what God's saying to me and I'll trust your promises and I trust you only, what happens? God never fails. And yet often we go, God's failing me. God's failed me. I've not got what I needed. I've not got what I wanted. God's not done what I wanted him to do. Take a step back and go, actually, is this where God wanted me? Is this what God is doing in my life? And this is really important. This is a very central theme because it relates to faith and righteousness. The two qualities that God looks for in his people. So when God's looking at you, what's he looking for? He's looking for faith and he's looking for righteousness. And remember that faith is counted as righteousness in Hebrews 11. Remember when we look at the list of people who acted in faith and were classed as righteous as a result? So faith is believing God's promises and acting on them. Let me say that again. Faith is believing God's promises and acting on them. Even if we don't see or understand what the end results of that might look like. Okay? Now I want to make something very clear, if I've not made it clear already. Faith is only acting on God's promises and his word. 
We cannot create for things for ourselves and call them faith. That's just willpower. Okay? Acting on God's promises is the sure and certain hope that they will happen. You can't just go off on your own. That's why that line that we talked about before was so important. Go where God tells you to go. Don't ask him to just catch you when you run off the edge of a cliff. He will, by the way, but it's, you're going to get hurt. Okay, It's going to be painful. It's the same with prayer. We pray in line with God's will. How do we know God's will? Well, it's revealed to us in Scripture, which gives us his character, reveals his character to us, and the Holy Spirit bearing witness to what he's saying. Okay, so we put all of those things together and we go, I can see what God's will is here, and it's a certain path, and I'm happy to put a step out because it's his path and he's clearly shown me. If you're struggling to hear what God's saying to you, just take a step back and say, okay, I'm going to stop walking, I'm going to stop running, and I'm just going to stop where I am because I might not be where you want me to be. I'm just going to listen. I'm just going to read. I'm going to meditate on your word. I'm going to listen to what you're going to say to me. And if I'm not in the right place, I'm going to be gentle and supple enough to be able to be moved to where you want me. Okay? We haven't always got it right. Here's a revelation for you. We might not all get it right. So when we're leading you as a church, you need to be able to come to us and say, you know what? That's not quite in line with what I believe God is showing us or telling us or revealing to us. Or, more drastically, that's well out of line with what Scripture says. And we need to kind of pull you up to account here. What's going on? Okay, we all have that within us. We've all got the Holy Spirit within us revealing truth. So when prayer, it's always in line with God's will. So how many times... Do we allow scripture to be tipped slightly off kilter and then wonder why we're let down? And it's the same with the promise of a king. The people of Israel desired to be like the nations around them eventually, but they failed to understand what God intended for them. Instead, they got kings who would dominate them and lead them in very bad ways for many years because they fail to understand that God is king and he wants to reign over us, not somebody else, not a man in his failures. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. I'm sure that Daniel in a couple of weeks' time will show you how the selection of kings could and would have disastrous consequences. For now we need to see how the transition to a monarchy system was to take place. So we've looked at before, very patriarchal system throughout Israel, but now there's a monarchy system about to come in. A monarchy system headed by a regal head, a king. Now we remember that the nations were governed by judges, people selected by God and raised up as rescuers from man's sin and desolation. That's what we've looked at previously. The problem was that we've already identified the judges, like the people, were imperfect and subject to sin and failure. Okay, So we can't hold the judges up and go, look how good they are, because as Steve rightly pointed out when he looked at judges, all of the judges also failed. 
they weren't moral, they were corrupt, they didn't get rid of idols, they failed in the end, even though they were used as rescuers. We should not be surprised then that Israel's kings would also come from the same marred stock. If you're going to pick human beings to lead you, then you're going to be led eventually in sin and desolation. Because that's where man's at. That's where his heart is. You see, in the time of the judges, as man descended down to probably one of the lowest points in history, probably matched only by the sin in Noah's day, when God flooded the earth as a consequence, and likely to be matched shortly in this current world, because that's where we're heading as well, where we should also expect God's judgment as a result, we saw, placed in the middle of that, the beautiful promise of being rescued into God's family with the story of Ruth. You remember that a few weeks ago? A story that also took place at the time of the judges. So in this darkness, in this desolation, And the book of Ruth is placed in our Bibles in order to bridge between despair and hope, judgment and mercy, death and life. And we enter enter into this mess of Israel's history, a judge, appointed by God, not only as a judge, but as a priest and a prophet, Israel's 13th judge, Samuel. Now, the next judge who's going to follow Samuel, is the 14th and final one. And it will be a game changer. Because the 14th judge will be called Jesus. Okay? Remember what a judge does. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 33. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. There is a judge coming who is going to judge everything. And he has in his hands because of his perfection, because of who he is, because of his righteousness, he alone can say yes, no. He will be the true king, the righteous king, the appointed king. So everything in the book so far, look forward to a king who will herald in righteousness and deal with man's sin and failure. Now Samuel, whilst a judge, is the method by which a king will be appointed. Just not the king. Okay? He appoints the king that the man wants. Just not the right king yet. So Samuel has a bit of a backstory given to him, more than any of the other judges. We know that Samuel is going to play an important part in God's restorative plan to restore his people. Why do we know that? Because we're given details of his birth. Okay? Most key figures in the Bible who are set apart for part of the restoration process, have details given about their birth. Okay, you don't just have them suddenly appearing. There's a birth story. Think Isaac. Think Jacob. 
John the Baptist and Jesus. All birth stories to show that there's something significant about to happen. See, we're giving insight into Samuel's roles. He was a judge, but he was also a prophet and he was also a priest. And Samuel is the prelude to the regal system of kingship. He heralds the change from judge to king. Now our journey through the big picture so far has shown us how God continues to work with whatever we give him. Have you noticed that? Have you, have you noticed that just, just God just seems to work with whatever we've laid down in front of him? Because it's a crazy story when you read some of the failures that man does and yet God still goes, oh, you know what, I'm going to pick that up and I'm going to make some beautiful out of it. I'm so thankful that he does that with us. Because we're a right mess, but God goes, I'm going to make something beautiful out of every single one of you. You put your trust in me and I will restore and make you beautiful. I will deal with sin. I will deal with unrighteousness. I will give you my righteousness. Let me deal with you. Let me make something beautiful out of you. So our journey through the big picture so far has shown us how God continues to work with whatever we give him. As in the book of Ruth has shown us, God works within the framework of man's actions in order to prove himself to us. Now I suspect this psalm written by King David makes the self-same point. Psalm 139, just a few verses, 7 to 12. This is David saying, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the furthest or farthest oceans, even there your hand guides me and your strength supports me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. What's that saying? It doesn't matter how desperate my situation becomes. It doesn't matter how far away I've taken myself. In the darkest depths of my despair, when I turn around, who's there? God is. All the way through Scripture, there it is. It's a statement that should give us solace and hope. We might be sitting here today or standing up here in desperate situations. But God knows... And wherever that situation you find yourself is, guess who's right by your side? He is never abandoning you and you can never take yourself to a place which is so far away that he cannot rescue you. No one is so far removed from God that God cannot reach in and rescue. No place is too distant. No place is too dark or so bad that God cannot reach us. And this should remind us of the landscape into which Samuel is born. The time of the judges was a dark place. A place where man did what he wanted without any regard whatsoever to God. The bleak, desolate state of man's heart does appear to be in an unredeemable place. When we get to the end of Judges, it's a very dark, desperate place. But God is 
was, still is, our Redeemer. Once again, we are given striking comparisons to show God's provision if man is obedient and the consequences, therefore, of abandonment. What happens when we decide to go it alone? The scene is set with the honouring life of this lady called Hannah and the correlation with Eli, the high priest, and his two sons. We're introduced to Hannah's situation with little fanfare. Hannah is the wife of Elkanah. But so, oh, I've got to be careful here, it's one of those words. So is Penina. Got to get that lodged in. The difference between the two is stark. Penina has children, but Hannah is barren. She can't have kids. Now, where have we heard this before? Abraham and Sarah. It's, see how God repeats and repeats and repeats? They're both married to Elkanah, then you were allowed to. But the difference between the two is absolutely stark. This is a great source of sorrow for Hannah. And her bitterness is compounded by Penina's ridicule of the situation. But as with all of the heroes of the Bible, Hannah trusts God. And on a visit to the tabernacle, prays for a son. You might go, why is she praying for a son? Well, remember the patriarchal system. Sons inherit and so on, and it carries on the family name. That's why she wants a son. It's nothing to do with sexism or anything like that. It's to do with claiming the inheritance and the name of the people, making sure it carries on. She prays for a son. And she says, if I have a son, if you give me a son... If you give me the desire of my heart, I will dedicate this son to the Lord. Now we're having a dedication next week. It's brilliant, isn't it? It all fits together. I will dedicate my son to the Lord and give him to service for the Lord for all of his days. Now next week, we have the pleasure of dedicating Olivia and Matthew. And I will ask all of us to commit to helping them to grow up to know the Lord. This is similar to what's happening here with Hannah. I will dedicate my son, if you give me one, to the Lord's service. And as we will see through the Bible, sorry, the Lord heard Hannah's cry and gave her a son, Samuel. And true to her word, Hannah gave Samuel to the priest, Eli to bring him up in the Lord's service. Now, as we will see throughout the Bible, being a priest does not mean that their heart is aligned with God's. Because why? Well, the same as judges, the same as the kings, the same as everyone else, they are men, and men are prone to failure. And when I say men, I don't mean just men fail. Okay, I need to, I need to kind of just, anyway, I've made it one way, I've got to make it the other way as well. So that, that's generic. Mankind, human beings fail. But in this instance, the men are priests. So, so Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, we are told had no respect for the Lord. And yet they're priests. They had no respect for the Lord. Samuel 1, chapter 2, verse 12 tells us that. 
In fact, it goes as far to say in verse 13 that they didn't even have any respect for their role as a priest. Thanks, Dad, for my title, but I don't care. And I'm not going to see it through, and I'm not going to do the right things. I'm going to use it because I've got this title. I'm going to use it for my benefit. Thank you very much. And the entire text draws us to see the distinction between Samuel and the serving priests. Samuel was a boy of honour and God-fearing. The priests were unfaithful, disobedient, and lacked any respect for God. We build people up nowadays, don't we? And we say, we put our trust in these people because they've got a title. And how many newspapers, how many television screens are filled with these people, these self-same people, proving themselves to be dishonest, proving themselves to be unfaithful, proving themselves to be unrighteous. Time after time after time. And we allow it. Please don't allow it here. Don't allow it to happen. If you see something that's going off kilter, please, please step in. Because I might be blinded to it. And so might the people next to me. So it's really important that we have our feet on the ground all of the time. So the twisting of the tabernacle worship by these priests and the offering system that they were abusing would eventually lead to the removal from office of the priests of the line of Levi. Remember when all of this, everything was dished out to the nations? Levi had this special blessing of not having any land but being serving as priests. Well, we're getting to the end of that Levitical priesthood because it just isn't working. When they get taken into captivity, all of this will stop. So God has a way of dealing with things that are going perverse and wrong. He just steps in and says, no more. It paints the same picture that we've seen previously and will also serve to highlight the difference between Saul and David, which is to come. God honours obedience, even in human failure, because that's really important. He honours obedience, but he judges disobedience. In fact, the entirety of Scripture that we've seen so far and is what's to come, in fact, the whole of this Bible tells me that reliance on God is rewarded and reliance on self is condemned. Now, we've previously looked at the importance of covenant and how this should dictate our behaviour. God has promised to live up to his side of the covenant. I mean, that's the kind of covenant it actually is. God says, I don't care what you're going to do. This is what I'm going to do, regardless of what you do. I'm going to love you. I promise to be faithful to you. I promise to rescue you whenever you ask for it. I promise to redeem you when you ask. I promise to be faithful and truthful and honest and all that qualities that God's got. I promise to do all of these things, even if you're unfaithful. In fact, all I ask of you is to have faith and believe my promises. Allow God to provide. Allow God to protect. Allow God to preserve. He will, because he promises to, deliver us. Now Israel's failure to trust God and their desire to be like the nations around them, i.e. we want to be strong in warfare, we want to be able to fend for ourselves, we want to do what man sees fit, 
reveals that they're no different to those around them. That Canaanites and the Philistines in particular are laid out as examples of the nations around them. Israel is failing to set an example to the nations around them to follow, which is what their intended purpose was. And they're failing. They want to be like everyone else. They should have been saying, we want everyone to be like us. And they were failing at the first hurdle. The warnings are there for us to see today for us as church as well. Don't be like everyone else. Be who God wants you to be. You're set apart, you're holy, and you're set apart in order to display God's goodness and mercy to all of those that you come into contact with. The problem Israel had was that it thought that solution to their predicament was actually military power and strength. If we're as strong as the nations around, then we'll be preserved, we'll be okay. But God had already told them that this was not to be the case. Observance to covenant was the requirement and trust in the covenant maker. That was all that they were asked to do and then God would take care of the rest. That's what the covenants were designed to do. I am in charge of all of this and if you just trust me, I will fulfill my covenant and all will be well. And into this scenario, a faithful servant grows up and remains obedient to God's call. His heart remains resolute, even in the face of strong opposition. Samuel's life honours God, and God, as a result, honours him. 1 Samuel 3, verse 19. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him. And everything Samuel said proved to be reliable. I hope that can be said of a lot of people. And all Israel, from Dan in the north to Bathsheba in the south, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. Now, in order to show the sovereignty and power of God, both to the Israelites and their enemies, we have some information of the Israelites' battles with the Philistines that's continued, that is contained in the first sections of Samuel's book, in which we find the Ark of the Covenant being taken away from Israel. So what's important about the Ark of the Covenant? What was the Ark of the Covenant made for? Who dwelt where the Ark? Yeah, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant was the place, the designed place, where God says, I'm going to come down and speak to you and lead you. And they let that get captured. Why? Because they were getting battered by the Philistines and they thought, you know what, if we bring the ark onto the battlefield, that'll win. Now, God's not told them to do it. They've just gone, you know what, let's be blasé with what we've got with God. Let's be blasé with God's presence. Let's be, you know, let's just be out there. Let's dive off this cliff. So they bring the ark of the covenant into the battlefield and what happens? The Philistines rout them and capture the ark of the covenant. So now even the presence of God has gone to their enemies. Wow. You see, the story of the ark then takes a, has a little story of its own. 
The story of the ark and the statue of the Philistine god Dagon is worth a look at. And you can find it in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Go and have a look at it. And let God speak to you about his power, his authority in the face of everything else. See, when the ark is placed in the temple of Dagon, so they, take, they, they, collect this, they collect the ark and they go, let's put it in the best place that we can. Let's put it in our temple in front of our God. That's a bit of a silly idea, isn't it? When you're talking about the king of kings, the Lord of those, the God. Let's put him in front of our puny little idol and see what happens. And when the ark is placed in the temple of Dagon, the chief god of the Philistines, the statue of Dagon just falls to the ground in front of the ark, face down. Okay? So what do the priests do? They come in the next day and they find this statue on its face in front of the ark of the covenant and they go, must have been a bit windy in here last night. Our statue's fallen over. Well, let's haul him back to his feet then. and just So they haul it back up to its feet and they go, dust him down. Give him a bit of a light dusting because he's got his face all smeared with dust from the ground and they leave him to it. And then they come back next day and what did they find? This statue is face down on the floor in front of that, smashed to pieces this time. Must have been a draft here. The imagery is clear. God is all-powerful. His presence is undeniable. All will bow the knee before him. If only we would bend the knee of our own accord in repentance and humility. You see, God's calling us all the time. He's giving us chance to repent and come to him of our own volition. But if we don't, events will just keep going on. And eventually, hopefully, you will see that Jesus is king and he's your form of redemption to God. But if we keep failing in that, if we keep pushing it aside, if we keep ignoring it, then one day all our chances run out and then we find out that all of this was true because we're now stood in front of Jesus who's judging us. And we haven't got his righteousness to help us. We're the sheep and the goats. We're separated left and right. So even with this display of God's power to the Philistines, what's the, what the Philistines did basically when, the, when this kept happening with their, with their um, God who's now smashed in pieces, they, they basically went, oh my goodness, we better get rid of this ark. We better send it back because uh, there's not a lot we can do with this. So they hurriedly strapped it to an ox cart and just, where you go, there's the borders of Israel. Just get out of our land. Go back to Israel. The Philistines returned the ark. They recognized the power of God and the curses it was bringing upon them. However, the sadness of this story is that the Israelites maintained their distance. And I find this a really sad, sad line. In 1 Samuel 7, verse 2, it says, The ark remained in Kiriath Yerim for a long time, 20 years in all. So the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence is, comes back out of Philistine, comes just over the border into Israel, and the Israelites go, yeah, let's just leave it there. Let's just keep it where it's, it's fine, we've got it back. Let's keep, this is the very presence of God, where God leads his people, and they're going, just keep it. 
how many of us go, I just want to keep God at a distance? It's all right knowing him. It's all right saying we belong to him. But I don't really want to be doing what he tells me to do. I really don't want to be doing the things he's convicting my heart of. I really don't want to deal with sin. I'm just going to keep him far enough away that I can say if anyone asks me, yes, I belong to him. But is he changing me? Is he challenging me? Is he making me who he wants me to be? Well, no, because that would mean that I'd have to bring him closer to me. And I don't want that. I'm going to keep my distance. 20 years, the Ark of the Covenant left on the borders. That is disgraceful. But it's there because it tells us that's what we will do. That's what we will do. During that time, all of Israel mourned because it seemed that the Lord had abandoned them. Who's doing the abandoning here? The covenant giver, the place of meeting for instruction, abandoned, leave it on the borders. And even in the face of all that God had done for them, the people did what? Cried out for rescue. God, help us. Hang on a second. The Ark of the Covenant was given to me to show that God was with me. And I've left that there and now I'm prepared to say, God, help me. Another way, please, because that way is too personal. That way means that you speak into my life and tells me who I am. I want another way. The judges have failed. The priests have failed. And instead of returning to God, the people began to call for another thing that they'd not yet tried. Let's have a king. Give us a king. A king to rule over us. And in that moment, the change to monarchy starts to begin. But remember, God's divine and sovereign will will show itself even through the failures of human characters. Even in darkness I cannot hide from you, says David. <laughs> to you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. Where can I hide? God's rule over the affairs of man is our resolute hope of a future with him as he designed us to be. People, the king is coming. The proper king. The true king. The king that Israel should have realized was above them. Not a king of man's stature, but a king who comes from God, with God's stature, who will rule and will look after and protect and all of the blessings that we read over and over again. But before we can have that king, a kingly line has to be established. And so God says, you know what? You misread what I said to you about wanting a king. And now you want this king. I'm just going to use these affairs of man and your character traits and all your failures. I'm still going to use them to show you how much I love you, how much I care for you, because yes, you're going to get a king. But it's not the king you expect. It's me. And it always has been me, not me, it's me. It always has been me and will continue to be me. Bow the knee to me. King's coming. 
Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.